We are continuing in our Expanding Horizon series. We've been spending almost a year, probably, on the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. That's about, I think it's our 27th class in the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And for those of you who've started with us since the beginning, you might recognize we're back in our regular Bet Midash. Uh, that's here in the Berakneset of Kilash Al Shamayim, as opposed to our COVID unit, so there's no pipes hanging down from the ceiling or broken walls or anything else you've noticed in the last few Zoom videos. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is setting out in the next couple of Shirim to dispel a myth. I call it a myth because though there may be some truth to it, it's not accurately portrayed by most people anywhere. And that is that somehow Sephardim are perceived as always being lenient when it comes to halakha. The word lenient, mekilin. Everything we do is lenient. And somehow Ashkenazim are always recognized for their stringency in halakha. You'll even see this word used very often. Under strict rabbinical supervision of, or according to the strict halachic guidelines of. Strict denoting that those who are not as strict are somehow not as good as they are. And though that may not be the intention, in a world which more is better, in the Jewish world definitely exists this element of more is better. The more you can do, the better. The more Shabbat you can keep, the better. The more Kashrut you can keep, the better. The more Tarat HaMishbacha you can keep, the better. Everything is the more, the better. The bigger your Tefillin are, the better. The longer your Tzitziot are, the better. You can make a list. The more mehudal your etrog is, the better. The taller your lunav is, the better. You may make a list. The more silver you have in your chanukiah, the better. Everything because the more is better. And this is something that's unfortunately very, very prevalent in the Jewish culture in which we live. Give me just a moment. As such, somehow there's developed this reputation that there are certain things, you know, Sephardim do them because their rabbis were lenient about something, but Ashkenazim can't. Because Ashkenazim are always following halakha strictly to the letter of the law. And this bothers Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin very much. Not only because we are different, as he spent the last summer explaining to us the differences between Sephardim and Ashkenazim, but sometimes those differences are not so innocent. Sometimes those differences actually border on contempt of halakha. On whose end? Well, that's exactly what we're going to see right now. In the middle of page 25 in the Roman numerals, and then that should be 23 in the regular PDF. Am I right, Chava? Yeah. Yeah? So we're in the middle of the page, right? Thank you. And more. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes the following. Biyot sha'arama b'shulchan aruch nitkabel b'chot sderot Yisrael l'machmir. Because the Rama has, in his notes on the shulchan aruch, has been accepted in all of the Jewish communities in the world as a stringent authority. Someone whose opinions in halakha are machmirim. I can't help but wonder if when he writes that the Raman HaShulchan Aruch is perceived this way. I don't know how many of you have read the Raman's book on philosophy, or even noticed some nuance in the other writings of the Raman that would lead you to believe that the Raman is not exactly the personality that people think he is. One day I'll give a shiur on the real Raman, but for right now, uh, suffice it to say that let's go based off of what we know as the Raman of the Shulchan Aruch. Bifrat bisu v'eter. Especially when it comes to the laws of kashrut, v'dinei shechita, and the laws of slaughter, v'trefot, and the laws of trefot. V'zeh darkom ha-kodesh, and it's his way, every halakha, it's his way, lomar en anu b'ki'im b'bdika, we are not experts in this type of checking, in this type of b'dika. V'yesh la'achmir, and one should be strict, v'yesh la'hatarif, and one should consider this food non-kasher. V'chen nohagim, oftentimes the Ramah will write, and this is our custom. And it's forbidden to change from this custom. The Ramah has all these words that he uses, and anyone who studies Shulchan Aruch will be familiar with them. 
the, the Maran will say something. The Maran says, but in our country, yesh la'achimir, or the custom is to do this way and you should not change. By the way, this en anu bikiim, the sentence that the Ramah uses often, the we are not experts. It's a very interesting sentence. You find this in a few areas of halakha. So I'm thinking of one when it comes to shechita. Can you tell me what the Ramah talks about? They are not bikiim when it comes to shechita. Okay, so checking the lungs, they do check the lungs, though differently than us, correct? Let me, let me spell it out a little more. Somebody recently posted on one of the Facebook groups that I'm a part of that if you slaughter a cow and you have leftover meat from the not kosher half of the animal, what do you do with the not kosher meat? And I was thinking to myself, in which reality is this person being taught that the meat that comes from the back of the cow is the not kosher part of the animal. You can imagine like there's a kosher part of the pig and a non-kosher part of the pig. So there's a kosher part of the cow and a not kosher part of the cow. What's he talking about? Now tell me what the difference in Anubikim. Very good. When it comes to the Gid Hanasheh, the Gid Hanasheh is the, is there an English word for this? Sayataka nerve that's inside of the back part of the animal. And as you know, in the Torah, the famous story in Bereshit, Vivatel Yaakov Levadov, Yaakov Kishimo, that Yaakov Avinu left alone, and a man fights with him, and the angel of Esav, and he touches his hip, and uh, from then on, the Jewish people have a law that they do not eat. Vegid Hanasheh. So what do you do when you slaughter an animal? You slaughter the animal, and then if part of the process of making this animal kasher is when you reach the sections of the animal that contain in them the Gid Hanasheh, what is done? There's a word for it in English, it's with a T, but I don't remember what it's called. In Hebrew, we call it nikul. What is nikul? They remove the... Very good. It's a, it's a, does someone know the English word? It starts with a T. If you look it up, you'll find it. Uh, this process of removal of the Gid Hanasheh and the forbidden elements around the Gid Hanasheh are done by expert shochatim that they do niku, menakrim at the behemah, and then the whole animal is kasher. This practice was taught to all shochatim, sevaradim and ashkenazim. At some point in time, the Ramah says, en anu bikiim, our shochatim are no longer competent enough to be able to do this practice of niku, and therefore we don't eat from the backside of the animal. Now when the Ramah says that, He's not telling you that there's a not kosher side of the animal. He's simply telling you that if a person is able to do nikul, then likely, what's it called? Treburim, that's right. Thank you. Um, very good. Thank you. I didn't know. In English, it's porging, and in Judeo Spanish, it's porging. I always thought that word with a T, I thought it was English. So look at that. I don't even uh, It's Yiddish. Very good. I can tell my wife now that I know one more word in Yiddish. This, you said purging in English, this purging of the backside of the animal, Niku, is exactly what makes the animal kasher for everybody. I believe there's even a teshuvah of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein who discusses this matter, and he says that if you know somebody, Savaradi, who knows how to do Niku, you can eat from the backside of the animal. So what does it mean, En Anubikin? Whenever Haraperetz reads Shukhan Ruch and he comes across the Ramah, and the Ramah says, En Anubikin, he says, Avalani Baki, I'm a Baki. He wasn't a Baki, but I, I know how to do this. When it comes to baking soft matzot, and anu bikim, we don't know how to bake matzot that are soft and chamez. Very good. You don't know how, but we, with all due respect, know how. We never lost the tradition. It's ironic to me that a Judaism that all day talks about tradition, 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 mesorah, 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 the whole life there, we are the holders of tradition, the most traditional of all the Jews in the world. When it comes to basic Jewish things, like how to do shechidah properly, like how to bake matzot for Pesach in Anubikin. We don't know how. How did you forget? And if you forgot, what does it tell me? And how do you somehow still hold yourself to be so high and mighty when basic Jewish practices in Anubikin, we don't know how? And this is exactly where Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is going. because of this, I came to present before my readers, that's us, as a piskeh halachot, Matmihot. Some surprising piske halakha. Shemaran habet Yosef ikhmir b'chol tokef. 
that Maran and Bet Yosef were stringent in every way possible. Because he refused to budge from the stance of the Talmud and the giants of Halakha. And the Rama came along. And he was lenient in things, contrary to the opinion of the Talmud and the rabbis who came before. And he was not afraid of anyone. To rely on all kinds of various minhagim. Even though the majority of them directly contradict the opinions of the Talmud. So the thesis now that Rabbi Shabtov Gagin is presenting, there are halachot where Maran Abed Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, rules in a certain fashion and is uncompromising in his stance because those are things that Chachmei Talmud decided are forbidden or permitted or whatever else it might be. Here, let's say forbidden. And along comes the Rabbah, Rabbi Moshe Yisraelish, and he says, listen, even though that's what the Talmud says, and even though that's what the, the Leipos scheme say, there's a minhag, and I'm going to justify this minhag, and very often that justification stands in contempt of the laws of the Talmud. But when it comes to presenting, so who is more traditional, who is stricter, says, I'm not sure how the Ramah got the, the, the stereotype, he got the reputation, that's the word, that he is somehow the stricter opinion in Halakha, and Maran is the lenient opinion in Halakha. And so let's look at this together. By the way, before I say anything more, this is something that bothers Rabbi Dov Gagin. He's going to mention it a little bit later. Uh, Rabbi Dov Gagin, let's look at this. I don't mind reading a paragraph ahead for right now. The reason this bothers Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin so much is because the whole purpose of this essay is to show how we can achieve Jewish unity. And he feels that this type of approach in halakha is taking away from Jewish unity. If you look on page 30 of the Roman numerals, but on page 28 of the PDF numbers, If you look in the last paragraph, before, I mean the second to last paragraph, Rabbi Shantov Gagin says he was somewhere in the United Kingdom, in one of the cities he was a rabbi, he doesn't say where. Chazal HaShoel, this questioner came and asked me another question. So he'd mentioned previously a question, now he's in the second question. V'sha'alani, he asked me, Uma odot bi'ir kilot? What do you do in a city that has two kilot? Sefaradim? It happens in the world that you might have in the same city, Sefaradim and Ashkenazim. I know it sounds unbelievable, but there is such a thing in the world. Halavai that Chachamim, who lived in every place, would know that their constituents are not homogenous people, and that they should know the Piskalacham, both of Sefaradim and Ashkenazim, very well. If you have more varieties of people, to know their Halachot also. And every one of those communities practices in accordance with their traditions in Halacha. Stringent and lenient. What should happen if Sephardim and Ashkenazim are invited to the same wedding, or the same party, the same event together? If the Sephardic Jew is the one hosting the wedding or the party, and he buys his meat from a Sephardic butcher shop, what should Ashkenazi who's invited there do? Can he eat the food or can he not eat the food? Or the opposite. If Ashkenazi is the event host and he bought meat in Ashkenazi butcher shop, what happens then? Can they host each other? Can they eat with each other? You see, oftentimes we say, we're the same. But really, there are certain points in life where when we meet, things become contentious. Things become problematic. Oh, I can't eat here, I can't eat there. I'll tell you a story. In Yerushalayim, a few years ago, 
I went to visit my in-laws. And for whatever reason, I decided that some people in the family needed a little bit of a celebration, and I bought some meat for a barbecue. Later, I found out that in my wife's family, it's against, it's against the traditional norms to barbecue. It's considered a, um, an inappropriate way of cooking food. I didn't know. It's okay. We did it anyways. So I made a barbecue. People came. They ate. They drank. So before I left Israel, I had a freezer full of meat. Good meat. Steaks, ground beef, I don't know, chicken, all kinds of things. I shop where, where my in-laws live, where my in-laws live, in Meashari. So I, whatever food I bought, I bought from the grocery store over there. I didn't go looking for some extra uh, cheap half-kosher meat. I bought whatever they buy in the grocery store in their neighborhood. And when it came time to leave, I asked my look, can I leave this here? I realized from their hesitance that they weren't so comfortable with the meat from the grocery store downstairs. Okay. So I went to another person who I know to be a Tanakhram, but I also know they're very poor. What do you mean very poor? If you would open up the refrigerator on Wednesday or Thursday during the week, you might find a bottle of water and an apple inside of the refrigerator. So I offered his family, here, I have food here, you can last you guys a few Shabbatot. And they told me, no, so we can't take it. We can, why can't you take it? It's a Sephardic Shechita. Yeah, okay, but it's not the Gida Nash, it's not the back of the animal, it's just a normal ground beef. They can't have it in their house. I mean, they'd rather starve then eat the meat that's packaged, they can't do it. What happens here is that these differences cause people who are poor. Who likes to be machmir and halachot? Mostly it's people that go to yeshiva, they're sitting in kola, all these people. Who loses out at the end of the day? I had a guy here in San Diego come collect in my door. He needed matzot for Pesach. I said, matzot, Baruch Hashem, he came to the right place. I took out a package, like five or ten packages of machine matzot, and I handed it to him. And he looked at me like I'd handed him a platter of bacon. I don't know what He looked at me like, what am I going to do with that? So we don't eat machine matzot. You know, there's a phrase in English, beggars can't be choosers. I didn't say anything. I held my cards. You know, you're right. You only eat uh, handmade matzot? Fine. I had these boxes someone sent to me from New York. They had three matzot for the seder. They're like uh, one, two, three matzot shmoot. I took it out, and I gave him one. The next day he comes to my house. He says, do you happen to have another box of matzot? So what happened to the matzot I gave you yesterday? He said, the driver who drives me around San Diego, he charges 50% of anything that I make. So if I make $100, he takes $50. And he said, yesterday I came with money and matzot. And the driver, listen to this, the driver took a matzah and a half for me. So now I only have a matzah and a half. And I need another matzah and a half. So who's being machmir here? Chacham of Yosef, in his youth, he ate machine masot for the seda, for everything. One of his sons said, we didn't have money to be machmirim. You know, you can't just choose your whole life. But it hurts people. At the end of the day, people get hurt when we have chumot that are not necessary. So let's read. Today I want to cover Shulchan Aruch I'm going to move a little bit fast, but if you'll hold on and, and follow along with me, I'm sure we can do it together. Rabbi Shom Tov Gagin is going to take the four volumes of Shulchan Aruch, and we'll probably do each one during each week, and shows how in each one of those sections of Shulchan Aruch, there are basic things that Maran writes that are forbidden to do, because that's what the Talmud rules, that's what the Rambam rules, that's what Maran therefore rules. And Ashkenazim, the Rambam, no, we have a different minhag that goes against the Talmud. So here are a few examples, and I told you in the past, I don't know how the mind of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin works. The order in which he picks halachot, I've never understood. But it's part of what keeps us excited and on our toes. I saw, I was, okay, I saw a page from a manuscript of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin on Shulchan Aruch. He seems to have written a commentary on the entire Shulchan Aruch. Part of it is in private hands, and part of it is right now in the hands of Yeshivat Ahavat Shalom in Jerusalem. And I prayed to Baruch Just like they were able to release his two volumes on the Parashat HaShavua, if you can get your hands on it, it's a special book to look inside of. Now, I hope that they'll allow his writings on Shulchan Aruch to be released as well. He writes the following. Siman Shin Lamedalet. If you look in Siman Shin Lamedalet, in Orach Hayim. Uviyore Da'a Kuf Pehei. Binyan Tanit and Mishachilel Shabbat, or Baal Hanida. Regarding fasting, the Ramah mentions how a person should fast if they violate Shabbat, or they unintentionally have relations with the Nida. 
וכן דיני תשובה מהרוקח, and all the laws of the תשובה that the מגן אברהם brings in סימן תרג"ג. דינים אלו אינם נכנסים במטרת חיבור שולחן ערוך, וזה שייך לצבעים מוסר. I'm going to quote הלכות from those sections, but even though the רמה writes things about how to do תשובה, and how much you have to fast, and if you're allowed to eat meat, and what happens if you break Shabbat intentionally, unintentionally, says the Bishop of Gagin, those are not halachic matters, they should not have been entered as notes on the שולחן ערוך. They should have been put somewhere else in the book of Musar, but definitely not in writings of the Shulchan Aruch. Look at the top of the next page. He's going to continue, though, in this section of Halakha. Sham. And if you open up your source sheet right now. So I'm going to pull mine up also. At the bottom, there's uh, Expanding Horizons, Alan Chaim, source sheet. If you look in the first source, now he also points to Chavdalid, but let's look here. Yehovah situation. A fire breaks out on Shabbat. What do you do if a fire breaks out on Shabbat? Do you put out the fire or not? You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to in which case? There's no danger to life. Very good. If there's no danger to life, what are you going to do? You leave the fire. If there's danger to life, of course you put out the fire. It's not a question. Of course you put out the fire. You, you don't wait to call a rabbi. Or make, you just put out the fire. But when there's no danger to life, or a sweater is going to burn, it let the sweater burn. Now there are halachot that are connected to this. So for example, there are rules as to if your clothes are burning, you're not allowed to leave. Chachami made all kinds of rules about a fire that breaks out in the house. Lo aleinu, lo Nobody should experience this. Chachamim are worried about two things. Let's imagine that there's an eruv you can carry outside of your house. So technically, you should be able to take everything outside of your house into the street and save it for the fire. Chachamim <coughs> prohibit us from taking things into the street that are muktzeh. We can't take them. And second, there might not be an eruv, or you might take them down the block where there is no eruv. So Chachamim decided you could only take out of your house what you need right now for Shabbat. If you don't need it for Shabbat, even though technically you could take it out of the house, you don't take it out of the house. What can you do though? You're allowed to tell a non-Jew, come, come, anybody who puts out this fire won't lose anything. What are you essentially saying? Won't lose anything. What does it mean you won't lose anything? It's a code for saying, I might pay you after Shabbat. Yeah, right, that's what you're going to say. I'll pay you after Shabbat. It's an indirect request to violate a rabbinic prohibition, in which case it's permitted in such, such circumstances. Here the Ramah has a note. Even though that's what the Talmud says, and that's what the Rambam says, by the corner of the Rambam it's even more difficult to take things out of the house. Because the Rambam holds that this prohibition of Melachto Shenat Sechale Gufo is on a biblical prohibition, not a rabbinic prohibition. It becomes complicated that direction. Says the Ramah, all of these laws that we've mentioned in the whole section of Shulchan Aruch about fires, that was only in the times of the Talmud. But nowadays, those Jews who live among the non Jews, and it's maybe a doubt that people's lives might be in danger. That nowadays you can put out the fires and the one who does it the fastest will be praised. He puts a contingency. If they're certain that no, nobody will get hurt, then they're not allowed to put it out. There's a house in the middle of a field. Nothing will happen. There's rocks surrounding the house. The house will burn. Nobody will get hurt. They can't do this. But 
that even if there's a doubt that someone might get hurt, you can go and put out the fire, not only in your own house. You could go put out a fire in a non-Jewish person's house. And this is the custom. What does the Ramah do here? The Ramah says there used to be a halakha in the times of the Talmud. But today, the law is different. Why is it different? Okay. There's a Tehumat addition he's basing himself on here. He implies it's somehow dangerous to not get involved when the fire is burning. I don't wish to say here, right or wrong. Rabbi Shem Tov is trying to point out from here that the Ramah is violating what the Talmud has ruled. Maran, who seems pretty rigid, is only upholding the law of the Talmud. And this is one such example where Maran and the Ramah are disagreeing about a law which, origin, which originates in the Talmud. Now I will say, there's a very interesting opinion of Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach. Harav Peretz really appreciated the Piskah Lacha of Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach. Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach writes this in a few different places. He was probably one of the earlier poskim who dealt seriously, or the beginning of dealing seriously with mental health issues in Halakha. He has a famous teshuvah about giving birth to a child that will cause the parents such distress that they might go into a mental, uh, they'll have a mental health crisis as it relates to abortion. He's quoted as having said that he is bewildered why Chachamim never asked, yes, yeah, someone's life might not be in danger from this fire physically, but emotionally, what will happen to a person who's watching their whole life burn? Their house, their belongings, their pictures, everything is going to burn. He says, some, a person can walk out of that traumatized for the rest of their life. That should be grounds for Chilu Shabbat, to save a person's mental health. Now, I'm not sticking my head, what would Maran say, what the Ramah say, I'm just saying that if you wish to analyze this halakha further, there's a lot to discuss in this halakha. So leave these two PDFs open. Regarding putting out a fire on Shabbat, the Ramah says that nowadays the law is different because we live among non-Jews. And whoever will be faster, it should be praised for putting out the fire on Shabbat. But we, the Sephardim, we hold uncompromisingly like Maran HaShulchan Aruch. Example number one. Again, Maran rules like the Talmud. The Ramah on his own says, we don't rule like the Talmud, the law is different today. Can you imagine just doing this, using this logic, not in this scenario, using this logic in a current Orthodox community? Yeah, Rabbi, the halakha that you said, it's true for the times of the Talmud. But today there's a new halakha. You can imagine what would happen to you? Somehow though, when certain people write those things, they're given a free pass. Now obviously the Ramah, and I am here with no attacks on the Ramah. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again. In our Bet Midrash, as taught us by Rav we prefer the Ramah to all of the Chagonim that exist in the world. The Ramah is second to the Shulchan Nonetheless, I'm still allowed to say that we don't agree with the conclusion. Next. In Siman Kuf Nun Vav. So let's pull up. That's the next source here. Uh, no, that was Kufay. The next source is number... Number five. Kuf Nun Vav. Pasak Maran, Maran rules, Shiloli Shatefim Goy, Mahid Sanhedrin. That a person should not enter a partnership with a non-Jew based on the laws of Sanhedrin. The Ramah comes along and is lenient, and that is against the Gemara. Let's look quickly at the Gemara in source 3. The Gemara says, uh, quotes of Baraita. The Baraita says, A person should not cause others, meaning non-Jews, to swear in the name of their idol. Have you ever heard a person swear with a, their idol's name? It's prohibited for a Jew to cause a non-Jew to worship Avodah Zarah in that fashion. And where do we bring a proof from it? From a teaching of Shemuel's father. It's forbidden for a person to enter a partnership with a non-Jew. Because 
Because maybe by entering a business relationship, a person will eventually have to swear. And we will be causing a non-Jewish person to swear in the name of their idol. There's nothing to do with not wanting to cooperate with non-Jews. You could do business with non-Jews. There's all kinds of things one can do with non-Jews. But entering a partnership usually requires a certain level of trust. That trust of swearing is something the Chachamim were afraid. We're going to cause a non-Jewish person to worship idols and we don't want to cause it. We don't want them to do it. The Rambam rules this way in the Mishneh Torah, that's verse number four. And Maran and Shulchan Aruch, number five, in the laws of business, Maran says the same things. After you finish your tefillah, a person should go work. Because if you just sit and learn Torah, the rabbis have taught us that Torah will become sinful. Because poverty causes people to violate the will of HaKadosh Baruch A person should still make his parnasah secondary to his limut Torah. And both will succeed in his hands. A person should do business honestly. A person should be careful not to say Hashem's name in vain. Because in every place where people say HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name in vain, God forbid, death is prevalent there. A person should be careful because Yenai HaMelech had a thousand cities that were destroyed. Even though they kept their promises, they made promises, and therefore HaKadosh Baruch destroyed those cities. And a person should be careful not to make business partnerships with a non-Jew because maybe we will cause him to take an oath and will violate the transgression of the names of other gods should not be heard on your lips. The Rama here says the following, And there are some who are lenient. In nowadays, making partnerships with non-Jews. What nowadays? Because the non-Jews today, they don't swear anymore in the names of their idols. And even though they mention the names of their idols, when they swear, so for example, a Christian will use the name of their Lord and Savior, but they don't really mean that he's a God, they're only referring to HaKadosh Baruch by using his name. There's another logic. There's a famous opinion of some Rishonim, that the non-Jews are allowed to worship idols so long as they believe in Hashem too. It's called Avodah Zarah B'Shituf. Jews are not allowed to do that. But non-Jews are. And so we're not putting a stumbling block in front of non-Jews because they're allowed to worship HaKadosh Baruch Hu in that way. And to do business with non-Jews, regular business is permitted according to everybody, except for during their holidays. There's laws in Yoyed if you want to look. There are times we're not allowed to do business with non-Jews. We don't want to help them worship idols. Now, again, what do you find here? Maran rules like the Rambam. Maran rules like the Talmud. And what does the Rambam say? Nowadays, halakha is different. That was example number two. Example number three. Sham, Siman Reish Memchet, back in Rishent of Gagin. Pasak Harama, the Rama writes, Shekol makom shadam holech lizchora, or lirot penechavero, chashuv devar mitzvah. That every time that a person travels for business or to visit their friends is considered a mitzvah. Valken agu bitzad mekomot, the akel binan aflagata svinat och shloshayamim, vayen sham shemekel binyanze. And therefore, he's lenient regarding setting sail three days before Shabbat. Is anybody familiar with this halakha? We start, it starts in section 6. Are you familiar with the halakha of traveling in a boat on Shabbat? Or not just in a boat, traveling, let's say, in a caravan. Let's start with a caravan. That's what he's going to start with. Are you familiar with these halakha a little bit? Yeah? Let's read together. I want to give you a picture from Shulchan Aruch. Uh, 6 in the source sheet. Hayotzim b'shayara b'midbar. People who go out 
on a journey in the desert, in a caravan. And everyone knows they'll be required to violate Shabbat. Because they cannot just hang around in the middle of the desert for Shabbat. It's a dangerous place. So three days before Shabbat, it's forbidden to travel into the desert with a caravan if you know that your caravan will not be able to stop on Shabbat. But if you travel on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, those are days that are still connected to last Shabbat. You don't have to worry on Sunday about traveling that maybe the next Shabbat you're stuck in the desert. Right now, you worry about now. But beginning Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it's forbidden to travel knowing that you might need to stop on Shabbat. You might need to travel on Shabbat. What happens if you leave on Sunday? And then you find yourself on Shabbat in the desert and you have to travel. So then you're allowed to violate Shabbat because to save a life you violate Shabbat. And there is no desecration of Shabbat. If a person is on their way to Eretz Israel, which is a mitzvah, now there's an argument among the poskim whether it's just to live in Eretz Israel or if you're going there just to travel. Which one is a mitzvah? Are both a mitzvah? That's a good question. If he finds a caravan, even on Friday, because it's a dvar mitzvah, it's a matter of a mitzvah. He can go if he makes a plan. He tells him, listen, promise me you won't travel on Shabbat. What time is it? It's Friday morning. He says, promise me you won't travel on Shabbat. And if once they're in the desert, they say, you know what, we don't want to stop. You're allowed to continue traveling with them even beyond the Tchum Shabbat because of Pikuach Nefesh. Says the Ramah, some say, that every place that a person goes, for business, or to visit his friends, all of them are considered matters of mitzvah. And they're not considered uh, leisure trips. Only when you're going to sightseeing or whatever other travel you'll be doing. And that's why it has become the custom in these places that they're lenient about getting on a boat or traveling with a caravan right before Shabbat. And they consider it all to be a Dvar Mitzvah. You should not protest. Don't tell them that they're doing something wrong. Because they have upon whom which they can rely. Now this idea of can you really rely on people, halacha, it's a good one, not for right now. But again, you find Maran is telling you a halacha, as it's written in the Talmud. And the Ramah says, no, let's redefine what is a mitzvah. Now maybe it's not him. He's saying as a yesh omrim. But he's telling you the custom of the Ashkenazim is to do something, literally getting on a boat a minute before Shabbat, a day, an hour before Shabbat. Something which is forbidden according to halacha. I want you to imagine this in modern terms, Okay. Who would tell you now that you can get on an airplane 20 minutes before Shabbat and take off and have your kiddush in the air? Now, but Rabbi Yosef Masas has a halakha like this. He rules this way. Don't, don't get stuck. I'm just telling you now, in general, if you would tell that, what do you mean? But you said, that's the Ramah who told you that. The one you consider to be the strictest opinion in halakha. Maran is the strict opinion in halakha. Don't get confused. Can I keep going with your permission? There are a few more examples. Yeah? The next. Look at Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Sham. Look in Siman Shin Aleph. Shemaran Asar. Maran prohibits. Latzet b'shabat b'maot b'kesef v'zahav. Maran says it's forbidden to go out with uh, gold coins or silver. With money on Shabbat. You can't carry that in your pockets on Shabbat. Do you agree that's the halakha? We don't carry our money on Shabbat? Baharama, along comes the Rama, he says, no, it's okay to go with your money in your pockets on Shabbat. 
Because he's afraid that people will steal it from him if he leaves it at home, he's permitted to walk around on Shabbat with his money inside of his pocket. You don't believe? Let's look at the Shulchan Look at Halakha 8. You know, Halakha 7, if you have time, look at it yourself. Uh, source 7. It's a very interesting Halakha connected to what we spoke about before. In 8, Maran rules and laws of Shabbat, chapter 301. It's forbidden to go out in a public domain on Shabbat. With gold and silver that are uh, money, gold, silver that are sewn into his clothing. Says the Ramah. But there are those who are lenient. In a place where they're afraid of losing. Because he's afraid that maybe if he leaves him at home or at his hotel or wherever it is, someone might steal him from him. And it's our custom to be lenient in Sarikh Latet. Says listen, if you could stay home and keep them at home without going out, it would be good. But if you have to go out, who knows? You came to another city for a bar mitzvah, whatever it's going to be. You have to leave. So take your money in your pocket and go. This again goes against the Talmud and the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch. The Rambam says, no, we're lenient to take out your money in your pocket on Shabbat. Let's keep going. This is a very interesting halakha. It's not so prevalent outside of Israel. In Israel, there's still some places where you can go on Shabbat. I recall that when I was living in the old city of Jerusalem, there was a, an Arab market that used to stay open just for the Jews on Shabbat, meaning Friday night for an hour, Shabbat morning for an hour, he was closed. His customers were Jewish for the most part. And he would stay open in case you forgot grape juice, you forgot a challah, you forgot hummus, you forgot something you needed. You can walk into the store, you just take it and you leave. No questions asked. After Shabbat, you come and you arrange your arrangements with him. He wouldn't let you. Hey, I'll come, I'll pay you. Don't talk about money on Shabbat. That's what he would tell you. I once asked him, I said, you know, all these random people come to your store, take things on Shabbat. His answer was to me, I trust that Jews who keep Shabbat will never steal from me. Those were his words. I trust that Jews who keep Shabbat will never steal from me. It's permissible to say to one's friend, fill up my container for me. Even though it's a measuring container, it's forbidden to measure out things on Shabbat because that's similar to the way you do business during the week. So, Maran says, technically you can go with your measuring cup. You, you're missing some, give an example, some olive oil for Shabbat. So you go to your friend, you know he owns the grocery store. He says, listen, do you mind, can you pour me some olive oil from your store into my container on Shabbat? I'll take it home. No, I'm talking about money, but, but why are you measuring it? You're measuring it so you know how much you have to pay back. One cup of oil, two cups of oil, five cups of oil. But one thing you're not allowed to do, it's forbidden to measure it in a measuring cup and then pour it into the guy's vessel. Because that's already the way you do business. You measure things and then you pour it in their container. That's forbidden. That's what the Talmud says. That's what Maran rules. It says the Ramah, V'yash Makilin, but some are lenient. Lomar dechol sheno mechaven limida legamre shememeet o mosiv mead shari. Vechen minhad pashut limdod bechli amyuchad amida vishpoch lekalav shalokeach veodid berecha besamuch tam amikilin. Says the Ramah, we're lenient about this matter, and later I will explain to you more about this leniency, but we're lenient in all these situations. So what do you do with the Talmud? The Ramah doesn't rule like the Talmud. Says Rabbi Shem Dov Gagin, He explained this entire example. Now we're on to the next one. Shin Lametet. This is a hard halakha. This is a hard halakha. Why do I tell you hard? Because even in my kina, many, 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 many people have been influenced by practices that are outside of the Sephardi community. And so I use this Ramah to judge favorably. But it's a difficult area of halakha. But I'll tell you now, I don't wish for you to use it to fight with people, but just to know about it for Shabbat. 
Dancing and clapping on Shabbat. Has anybody ever been to a bit of Knesset where they dance and clap on Shabbat? Yes, let me ask you the opposite question. Has anyone ever been to a bit of Knesset where they don't dance or clap on Shabbat? Okay, I got some mixed reactions here. When I was a rabbi of another bit of Knesset, I had an old man who used to come to the bit of Knesset. He was an Egyptian man. Interestingly enough, he originally came from a Karite family, but he, from Egypt, but he today identified with the rabbinic community. And he would come to bit of Knesset on Shabbat. And there were people that when we would sing songs on Shabbat, they would either bang and they would clap, and then he would get up out of his chair. An old guy, man. Get out of his chair and scream at them. How do you guys not be embarrassed to be Mechadah Shabbat in the middle of the Berakneset? Like you want to drive your car here, park around the corner. You want to use your phone, walk outside. You want to clap your hands, do it outside of the Berakneset. How could you do it inside of the Berakneset? And nobody understood for the life of them what was his problem. Let's read together Halakha. Maran writes, En metapchin laakot kaf el kaf. Velo mesapkin laakot kaf el kaf. We don't clap our hands together. We don't clap our hands and our thighs on Shabbat. We don't dance it's a rabbinic decree. Because maybe we will come to fix a musical instrument. And even to tap your finger on the table or to tap your fingers together, just to keep a rhythm, it's not even making sound really. Just to do that is forbidden on Shabbat. Or to rattle a nut for a child. Or to play with two nuts together. You make a, a rattle, a child's rattle. I never understood why that would make a kid sleep, but I guess if you rattle me, I would exactly my feeling, I'll be rattled. But you rattle the kid, he goes to sleep. You can't do that on Shabbat. Everything that's like this, included, it's all forbidden because of a rabbinic decree of the National Court of the Jewish people that it's forbidden to clap and to dance and to do all these things because you might come to fix a musical instrument. But to clap with the backs of your hands in some kind of altered fashion, that would be mutal. Says the Ramah, the Ramah comes along, and now the Ashkenaz they clap and they dance on Shabbat, and we don't protest, it's because it's better that we allow people to violate Shabbat unknowingly than knowingly. And if we tell them, then they know they're breaking Shabbat. But if we don't tell them anything, and some say, that nowadays all of these things are permissible. Then Anu Bikin Basiat Kleshir because we don't know how to make musical instruments. Because today none of us know how to make musical instruments. We don't know how to fix musical instruments. But that might be true for me. But if you're a musician, you know how to replace a string on your guitar, or you know how to fix the top of your bongo drum, or whatever it might be that you know how to do, then this doesn't apply either. But according to Tosafot, and this is very important that you should understand, this comes from the Balea Tosafot. The Balea Tosafot, for whatever reason, don't always feel bound by the laws of the rabbis of the Talmud. And they say, no, nowadays you could play this, you could clap on Shabbat, you can dance on Shabbat, because we don't know how to do it. Even though there's a law in play, they still say that you're able to do this. <coughs> Says Rabbi Shem in the last paragraph, the four Yoredev, <laughs> it is written before us in the Mishnah, and I quote the Mishnah here in 12, in case you want to look it up in the right context. In Masechet Beta. We don't climb a tree because of the laws of Shavuot. There's an area of Halakha called Shavuot. Our rabbis prohibit certain things because of Shavuot. Shavuot includes these categories, not climbing on trees. We don't ride on the back of an animal on Shabbat. And we don't put out a, we don't go out on the, on the water. And we don't clap, and we do not dance. According to the halakha, 
clapping, dancing, and riding a horse on Shabbat are all the same halakha. If you would ask any Ashkenazi rabbi, they would tell you, riding a horse on Shabbat is forbidden. It's exactly the same source though, that says that you can clap on Shabbat. So you have to make up your mind. Are you allowed to ride horses on Shabbat or are you not? And if you're allowed to ride horses on Shabbat, then why are you allowed to clap on Shabbat? There are many answers that have been given here. Many different circumstances that people have discussed. But the, the point of Rabbi Shantov Gagin is very important. There is a certain inferiority complex among those of us who follow the Shulchan Aruch. That somehow, there are people out there who are following halakha stricter than us, better than we are doing it. And it makes you wonder, are they really stricter? Or do they live in some chaotic world of lawlessness and disorder? The title of today's show. Sometimes it's permitted, sometimes it's prohibited, sometimes there's a minhag that violates halakha, but we're going to come up with a reason why we allow people to continue violating halakha. What's really going on here? We can't answer that question until we analyze the next three segments of Shulchan Aruch. And just like we did this today for Rachaim, next week we'll be doing the same exact thing for Yulada. I want to leave you off with a thought. I have a friend, a dear friend of mine. He's many years my senior. If I can tell you in which esteem I hold him, he's as Zaken Haida. He's from the elders of the Jewish community. This rabbi is the only rabbi in the United States that when I'm unable to reach my rabbi, Harav Peretz, I call him to consult on Harav Ha'ul. It's a person that doesn't want people to know who he is. It's an Ashkenazi rabbi who many, 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 many years ago became Sephardic. He studied by Chacham Uri Yosef, by Harav Yosef Kapach, by a number of great Chachamim of the previous generation. And one of the things that I asked him was what made him go on this journey of following the Shulchan Aruch and he identifies today as Sephardi. He said, you know, all communities in the world have customs that are in error, mistaken customs. Sephardim have them, Yemenites have them, Ashkenazim have them, Hasidim have them. But there's two attitudes when the rabbis see the Jewish people doing something mistaken, according to Halakha. There are those who try to fix it, fix the problem, teach people the Halakha, bring them back to the right path. And those who try to justify every violation of Halakha as some sacred minhag. And he said he simply couldn't live any longer justifying every violation of Halakha as something sacred. Instead, it's the job of Chachamim to tell people, listen, we know you've been doing this for a long time. We're sorry to tell you, you've been doing this for a long time very wrong. And now you're here, you can change your life around. So somebody once said, you're not a tree. You can always pick yourself up and move and do something else. And it's time that when we teach halachot, that we show not just someone is stricter, someone who's actually following the laws of the Talmud. And when we finish this whole section, the Shulchan Aruch, and we understand that Maran is truly following the Talmud, then Rabbi Shemzov Gagin can finally make his last pitch. And that's what we'll be spending the winter semester studying together. So I just want to say that I missed everyone here very, very much. Uh, for those who are here now, for those who couldn't make it because of the time change, and for those who will be watching this on YouTube or on the podcast or anywhere else, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate learning with you and having you here. And it's really good to see your faces for those who have their cameras on the school mitzvot. And for everybody, I wish you all a wonderful week. And God willing, I will see you here either tonight in tonight's class or next Tuesday here in the Bede Knesset.